0: Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen. Through Their Eyes, our special series featuring Utah teenagers discussing current events on Utah's Morning News with Tim and Amanda. Such
2: a pleasure to have this week on the program. Josh is here with Dylan and Micaiah. Welcome, welcome to all of you. Uh, So many interesting things to be talking about in our world and and locally. And I guess I I want to start with the situation between the United States and Iran. Um, So much developed, but I want to give the caveat that we are recording this program on Tuesday, the 14th. And something may have developed between the time that we are recording this program and the time that you may be listening to this program. So with that caveat, caveat, Josh, would you speak to me about what you saw take place and begin wherever you want to begin. Offer whatever opinion you want to. Uh, I'm not even sure how to frame it, but just offer whatever you'd like.
3: Well, I think it's fascinating. I think really when I started following the story, when I started really understanding the situation was with the actual – a drone strike um, that that killed the general and since then obviously things have progressed we have the the downed Ukrainian airliner and and the terrible tragedy there and the missile strike against the US air base in Iraq but uh, i think that's kind of where the story started and where things really kind of took off although i mean i think as far part of a very broad story of of conflict with iran i think this is a this is just a chapter
2: yes so as you watched this Unfold? What were your thoughts? Did you have, I mean, my 14 year old son said, Are we going to war? And I said, No, honey, I don't believe so. Although I can't say that with complete assurance. I, I don't work for the government,
3: I don't make these decisions,
2: but I felt fairly confident that the answer to that was no. Did you have that concern when you saw things developing?
3: You know, based on a lot of the the articles I read researching the topic, you know, it, it would seem like that a lot of the, a lot of the headlines are like, "Oh, we're on the brink of war with Iran." But I myself never felt as though that was a very likely thing. I think it, it you know, obviously the situation was escalating, and. Looking back on it now, I think we're seeing possibilities of how it could have escalated even further. It actually looks like the airstrike on the U.S. airbase, according to the people that were there, was intended to kill U.S. soldiers. It wasn't just, although you know they've come out publicly and said that it wasn't intended to. That's that's kind of what it looks like. So, you know, it's hard to say. But um, as it was going on, as I was following it kind of real time, I didn't have that perception. I didn't think it would escalate to that to to a full out war. Um, exactly.
2: Hmm. So, when you were following this, um, Dylan, what, what, what did you think? And when did you begin to become aware of it? Let's go through a timeline, if you don't mind. Was it with the the killing of the general? Is that when you begin to follow it?
4: It was with the drone strike that I first uh, heard about this story, and I have. Uh, briefly been following the story ever since then.
2: And as you followed it, did you think we were acting in, in an appropriate way, we the United States, or were you concerned with our actions?
4: Um, I don't really know if it was appropriate or not appropriate. What I do know, though, is that our actions need to, uh, we need to ensure the safety of America and ensure that Uh, what we provide to the world, like our foreign aid that we provide, it needs to be protected because when we are protected, so is the world with that foreign aid.
2: Yeah. I remember hearing early on in the story that previous presidents had had the opportunity to kill this general, Bush and Obama, I think, and did not act on their opportunity But President Trump did. Did you hear did you hear that? I'm not sure exactly why they acted as they did. But when you heard that, what, if anything, did you think?
4: I think it's interesting that uh, how President Trump has really just turned a full 180 on how we are interacting with uh, other nations. And uh, I'm not quite sure how that will turn out for our nation, but I guess time will tell.
2: Yeah. When you see the people in Iran first protesting out in the streets by the thousands after the killing of the general, furious with the United States and mourning his death, but then out in the streets, angry with the Iranian government for having shot down that plane, does that say anything to you?
4: I just uh feel... I believe that it just it's important to look at uh, not to stereotype those people uh, because they don't all just have one opinion. And we need to recognize that they're all individuals.
2: Yes. I think that's a good place, uh, Makaya, to start Um, with the people of Iran. How did you interpret what you saw from the people of Iran?
1: Well, I think it's a really unique turnaround from being angry about the general to then fighting against their government. And I think it really shows what the people of Iran want versus what their government is portraying for them. And it's interesting because we've always seen Iran as our enemies, but it really is only the government of Iran that's our enemies. And we as the U.S. need to be able to help them in a way that's still keeping our boundaries strong like Trump has been doing. But still we need to have sympathy for them because they are run by a tyrannical government. And we definitely saw that when they were out in the streets.
2: Does anything come to your mind when I ask you, how do we help the people of Iran without helping the regime that's running the country of Iran?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer, I think, is, is being the America that we're supposed to be, first of all. And I think that Trump is doing a good job of that, of saying, we stand for freedom. And and so I think that's one way that we can definitely help them. I don't think we can go in and, and aid them specifically. I don't think that's our role as America. But just setting that example, and I think that's what Trump is doing, is the best way that we can aid them right now.
2: Backing up to the, the thing that uh, began, at least in, in recent history, um, this discussion, which is the killing of the general. I don't. I don't think anyone would would uh, say or defend that he was a good person. I mean, he was a terrible person responsible for the deaths of so many Americans and others. Um, but there is a debate about whether or not killing him uh, led to a safer uh, situation for the United States or the world. How do you see that? Do you think killing him led to a safer situation for us?
1: I do think so. I think his killing was both morally and legally justified because I think the message that Trump was sending to the world is Iran isn't the same Iran that it was under Obama the U.S. isn't the same U.S. it was under Obama Iran didn't know what Trump was going to do and Trump made the message clear that you don't kill our American people you don't hurt us or you will reap the whirlwind of that I think that message really puts us at an advantage point where we can really put Iran's government in their place and keep us in ours as well.
2: They did seem quite shocked by his action, yeah. didn't they? Um, any other thoughts on this story from anyone?
3: Yes, please. Yeah, I think it's very important to kind of to, to go back to where our, our original involvement in the situation began, you know, with the embassy and even with the killing of that American contractor. I think especially, I mean, when dealing with any country, but especially with dealing with some of these unstable Middle Eastern countries where there's a— Huge difference in culture, right, in values, strategic culture, kind of understanding each other. I think it's incredibly important that intent, the intent of our actions is very clear through our communication with them and through our actions. I think we need to go, you know, why did we do this? It's not just because we're your enemies. It's not just because we want to fight you guys. No, there's a very specific reason why we did this. And I think going back to, again, the killing of the U.S. contractor that kind of prompted that. The idea that there was an imminent threat, you know, whether that's still in debate. But if there is one, I think, you know, that's that's another reason we could fall back. on. I think having that intent be incredibly clear um, is is important. I think that can prevent a lot of conflict from happening in the first place. And when it does happen, you know, ensure that every, everyone's on board. It's justified. We're all on board with that. And I think it was really sad to see a lot of American allies um, not – not understand that.
2: And I wonder if they didn't understand in part because the evidence can't come out in a clear way. Um, And I'm just asking, what do you think about that? Because we can't, we being, you know, the, the American people and the people of the world, we can't know all of the evidence upon which the decision is made, so much of it is classified. So how do you get clear in your understanding and embracing of a decision that's made on evidence you can't know?
3: It's, I think it's a really tricky situation. Obviously, you know, we're never going to be able to share all of the intelligence that, you know, we have that would lead us to come to a certain conclusion. And so I think we have to really rely on trust. I think it comes down to trust. And that's something that's earned. And I think, the United States, through its consistent actions, can, can earn that trust. I think um, this president has kind of reaped, reaped the rewards of being not very trustworthy. He's been very unpredictable. And there's benefits with that too. And I, and I don't want to say there isn't benefits. to that. I think by being unpredictable, he's been able to get a better deal per se in, in a lot of different ways for the United States. But he's kind of destroyed that trust, and that has made it far more difficult to work with U.S. allies in coordinating action against shared threats. Mm-hmm. I think Iran highlighted that situation while we had to put U.S. troops in. Countries like Germany, they were pulling troops out. Um, and that was unfortunate, but I think that was a consequence of a lot of different actions. It should not have been unforeseen.
2: Mm. Any other thoughts before I change topics? I want to ask you about this um, and it's just sort of a general topic, but it was a topic being discussed a week or so ago, um, both in the news and in the newsroom, about how the desire for likes, Instagram likes, I suppose that would also be Facebook likes or Twitter likes or whatever on social media, how the desire for likes affects what we do Um And I suppose your generation in particular, because you've grown up with it. This is a big, this is a huge part of your generation, perhaps more so than the rest of us. But we are all living in this world, uh, my generation included. How much does that desire affect what we do, how we feel about what we do, how we see the world? And I'll start with you, if you'll permit me, on this one, Dylan. Does it affect the things you choose to do? Does it affect how you feel about what you do? Speak to me in whatever way you'd like to.
4: You know, I kind of have a unique perspective on this because I used to have social media, but I've completely removed it from my life. Why? Just because I've seen the negative influences that social media can have.
2: On yourself or on others?
4: On everyone. I, uh, there are coworkers at my, at my job where I work, uh, and there are times where I'm able to just uh, talk with uh, my coworkers, but many of them I still do not know to this day because all I can see is the top of their head as they scroll, scroll through Instagram. So just seeing that and observing it, it caused me to realize that when I'm on social media, I'm doing the same thing. So I I completely removed it from my life, and I no longer participate in social media. How
2: long do, ago did you do that?
4: This was about uh, two years ago.
2: Two years ago. And what has your experience been since then?
4: I found that I've really been able to uh, understand and enjoy life without constantly wanting uh, and feeling like I need to check my Instagram feed uh, to see if anyone has commented on my r- most recent post.
2: Uh, so, you know, they say that happiness is learning how to live in the moment. Are you then living more in the moment? Because you're not thinking about, about uh, posting a picture of the moment. You're just living in the moment.
4: Yeah, I'd say I would. <laughs>
2: yeah. Wow. So it, So, of course, it doesn't affect your choices. You're not doing anything to affect it. It's not a part of your life. No, it's not. Would you recommend to others that they get rid of it? Or there are, let's just be clear, there are benefits to social media, particularly in business. Do you ever think you'll bring it back into your life?
4: I might bring it back into my life, but definitely not until I'm older. And definitely I would, I would not use it unless I absolutely need it. And I would recommend, it, recommend removing it from, uh, recommend to other people removing it from your life uh because it, there are just so many benefits to not needing to be constantly looking at your screen to not being just the top at uh, top of your head to other people to actually being able to experience life yeah
2: Micaiah, that uh, that's amazing to me mm-hmm. uh, what's your experience
1: so i think when it comes to instagram and social media i specifically and i think everyone a lot of times goes around asking the question What can I possibly take a picture of and then post on Instagram to show that I have a life and that it's a good life or a perfect life? And with everyone asking that question, all we see on Instagram is these little snapshots of people's perfect lives that don't actually exist. And with all of us asking that question, what will be the most aesthetic on my Instagram page, I forget to ask what is the most meaningful thing in my life rather than what can I show on Instagram? And I think that's something that definitely affects my generation and definitely affects our world is we're forgetting to look at the meaningful things like Dylan's remembering to do. And we're not living in the actual moment. We're worrying about what's on our Instagram feed and how many likes we're going to get for that. So this was a good motivation for me to start shifting my focus from what's going to look best on my Instagram feed to what is the most meaningful thing in my life and why does that actually matter
2: is there a difference in your experience of what you post versus what you look for and how you enjoy or don't enjoy scrolling through your instagram feed can you describe that to me
1: yeah i think when i when i don't have that mindset of what can i put on my instagram feed i spend more time with my family and with my friends actually enjoying that time rather than, you know, worrying about if this picture is going to look good and if I'm going to look good in the picture, you know, things like that. And then when I scroll through other people's Instagram, it's interesting for me to realize their life isn't perfect like that. And oftentimes they're struggling just like I'm struggling, even though their Instagram story may say different. And so it's a really neat perspective to look at that instead, instead of just worrying about, you know how look good I look on Instagram.
2: Wow, Josh, speak to
3: me. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we as a society have have gone incredible lengths to dehumanize struggle, and I think that's completely the wrong approach. I think struggle is probably what makes us more human than maybe anything else. That we do have things that are challenging to us. You know that we overcome, that we hopefully grow from, grow from, and become better. I think. When we're so focused on what other people think, we, we forget that. We fall into that trap. We think our struggles are bad. We're not the perfect people that we're supposed to be, that everyone else seems to be. Um, whereas, you know, if you set that up for yourself, you're never going to be happy. You're always going to have something you're struggling with. And so I think when you fall back on that, to, to have struggle is to be human. Um, and to be learning and growing from that is, is important. It's something we should intentionally be doing.
2: But what about the chance on Instagram and other social media to share our struggles? Is it of value because it offers that opportunity
3: I think so. as a platform, yes, I think really, when it comes down to it instagram facebook these other twitter these other social media platforms they're forums right they're just places where you can go and you can communicate and you can you can share a message so i don't think I think communication is an incredibly good I think when used at its best, those platforms can do so much good in the world, incredible good in the world um I think it's only when, when we start misusing that and abusing that that it becomes bad. And so I, I wouldn't say the platform is inherently good or bad, but what we as a society choose to use it for is what makes it good or bad. And I think what our society is choosing to use it for is, is especially telling of our values as a culture, as a society.
2: Do any of you want to comment on what you think the effect has been on your generation? Or is that too generalizing? please.
1: Well, one thing, the question that you just asked, Josh, I think is interesting because when it comes to sharing your struggles on Instagram, I think that that can be a very helpful thing. But I also think that that has turned against my generation as well. Because by sharing our struggles on Instagram, I found that people don't connect in real life when it comes to discussing their struggles as much or as frequently. And so while that is a positive thing for sure when used correctly, I think that we also need, as a generation, to turn back to in-person conversations about our struggles and have that communication be really open and meaningful through in-person communication and discussion.
2: Bravo. Um, All right, so I go from the need for in-person and human connection to AI. I want to know what the three of you think about what the effect will be on your life, if any from artificial intelligence. And I guess that my limited, and I I do not profess to know anything on this topic, other than the limited amount that I have read in conjunction with the presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, and some of the things that he's said and the limited amount that I've learned that it's not just something that affects blue collar jobs, that it can affect, you know, white collar jobs as well, that you can have a, a, an AI writing news stories. <laughs> I mean, so it's, this is something that, that could affect all of us and could also reap benefits. And then the question would be, how do we distribute the benefits from the AI? Um But I want to know what your generation and you specifically think about how AI might affect you. Makai. may I start with you?
1: Yeah, I think the interesting thing about AI is we often hear the story that the robots are going to take over the world or the narrative that we're going to have to move to Mars because artificial intelligence is taking over human life. But I think while those are things we need to consider, even more so there is a different narrative that isn't told as often that I think my generation needs to hear, and that is automation. Automation is a real thing. Mass unemployment could be a, a potential possibility for our nation. And like you said, it, it's not just for truck drivers. With this artificial intelligence getting to the point that it can get rid of human error completely, it makes it so people who are, have skills in certain areas, like writing a newspaper, all of a sudden their value as skill goes down because the robot can do it better. So they they start getting paid minimum wage. And this is an issue that we definitely need to address because unemployment is a real thing and something that we could potentially be facing in our world pretty soon.
2: So then my question becomes, with all of the money that's saved from the AI performing these functions, where does that go? How do we as a society benefit from, Josh, the money that's saved from the artificial intelligence performing these functions that used to be performed by people? How do we benefit from that as a society rather than look at it as we're all going to be out of work? Or is I, or am I asking the wrong question?
3: No, I think that's exactly right. I think as with innovations that happen, you know, disruptive innovations that happen in our economy, AI is obviously going to be huge. Eventually, though, things will kind of settle out, right? And so even though we won't have as many human workers because Employers are able to save money through using the robots. Prices for goods will go down. Eventually, everything will kind of even out. It's going to be that transition that is going to be really, really rough, and I, that's what I think we're not ready for. And in terms of, you know, how do how do you soften kind of the blow of that? Um, those are big questions, and I think. It's going to take a, a lot of smart people really thinking about it. And, and as I was reading the article, I, th- I thought it was shocking because Andrew Yang really is the only one person that I've, I've heard about, you know, and, and doing my research that has really focused on that. And I think this is, an isu- this is a huge issue, right? That transition is going to be incredibly hard. Mass unemployment. This is a dialogue that we need to be having so much more.
2: And where do the people and all of their skills – what happens with all those people who are in the fields – Dylan, that used to be, you know, what happens to all the truck drivers that used to to be driving trucks that are now being driven by, uh, you know, self-driving trucks? What happens to all of those people? And is it just a matter of retraining? Or I, I need to try and understand, because this is your generation, is it not that it's going to affect the, the most? How do you understand this?
4: Uh, my understanding is that... Uh well, there is the perspective that many people will be unemployed with uh, AI. I believe that it actually, there won't be mass unemployment, there will be mass re-employment. Because now with, uh, with my generation moving into needing to know uh, robotics and computers, now we're, we're not going to have truck drivers, we're going to have engineers.
2: And so instead of doing this, they'll do that. It really is just – and do you think there will be – it will be enough to, to meet that need? I guess every, every time there is a massive paradigm shift, we find a way. And why would this be any different? I hear optimism in you.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look, look at the time of uh, when the car was first invented. You have uh, thousands of people went out of work uh, because the buggy whip was no longer being used. But now this the car has benefited soci- society, and there is not mass unemployment. There are just uh, people working now on cars instead of working on buggy whips. It's just changing where people are working.
2: Will you be one of those people who directs us and leads the way?
4: Maybe. Maybe!
2: <laughs> All right. Uh, fascinating. Any other thoughts on this uh, interesting topic? Yes, please.
4: Yeah, I— I really like the idea of AI just because it protects people. I mean, you have the, uh, the first responders, the military, you have the uh, police officers, you have fire uh, firemen. All of these first responders are people who risk their lives in trying to protect us. But with artificial intelligence, they can then uh, use robots to save us instead of having to risk their lives. And that makes it safer not only for us, because the artificial intelligence can respond faster, but our, but also for them, because they don't have to risk their lives.
2: I love that. I had never even considered that. That's beautiful. Um, I want to ask you a, a question about uh, Cal, California is always coming up with interesting laws, and one of the laws that they came up with uh, this year is quite controversial, and it came it was born out of the Me Too movement. And I want to know what you what you think about this. This is, they call this uh, the Me Too boardroom law, and it would require private companies to uh, add women to their boards based on the size of the company. So if it was, if it was a you know, relatively small company, perhaps they'd have to add one woman, one woman to their board uh, if they didn't have any women, and, and or perhaps two and three and four, depending on the size of the company and so on. Um there are many people who say the reason that this law exists is because we waited for companies to do this on their own, and they just didn't. We waited and waited, and they wouldn't. Even though there is so much research that shows that, that when women are on boards, companies do better, and we we had to enforce this uh, law. Then there are people who say you should never do this by law, that this should always be a choice, because if you, a, a woman who's on a board, because of a quota, we'll always have an asterisk by her name. Because you're the only woman on the panel, I guess I'm going to start with you, Makaya. What, what do you say about this law?
1: So, when it comes to a successful company, or a successful workplace, they need to demand that the best person be for the job. And because men and women are equally capable of that, then they should have the equal opportunity. But with that in mind, I don't think that this boardroom law is a good idea for two reasons. And those two reasons are first, I don't think that the message that they're sending to women is an empowering one with this. It's not empowering to me that the state has to require that my gender has a space in the workplace. And it's not empowering that they're not celebrating the wins that we've already had by making this law. And so I don't think this is an empowering message, and I don't think it'll solve the problem in that way. The second reason I don't like it is because having this woman quota would force companies to discriminate against men when it comes to voting for new board members. And the question that I ask myself is, why do we have to discriminate against men to lift women up? I don't think that that's fair. I want, I want no discrimination, and this law doesn't achieve that for me. So as a woman who wants to be in the workplace, I'm against this because it's not empowering and it, and it doesn't solve the problem of discrimination.
2: So how do you, how do you address the complaint that companies have had forever to to add women to their boards, and they just aren't doing it.
1: Well, I think we need to look at the progress that we are making. We are making progress. Women are making it on their own. And I believe that that can continue to happen without the state getting involved.
2: Mm. What do you say, Josh?
3: I think, you know, as I read about the, the piece of legislation, my biggest question is where are we going with this? what is the rationale behind this? What is the ideal world that we're looking for that we're going to get closer to by achieving this? Is it gender parity? Are we trying to have you know half women and half men in every single company in every single state? Do we need to relocate people so that it's equal gender distribution? And I think I, it wasn't very clear to me what the goal was. I think equal opportunity is obviously something we need to strive for. That being said, I agree with Mackey. I felt like it was kind of patronizing towards women. You need this law to kind of to, to help you out or something, which I think is completely untrue. Um. So I think, you know, we are getting better. We're going to get closer to that. And if we do have this goal of, you know, 50 percent men, 50 percent woman for every job, I feel like that's unrealistic. And I wasn't really clear where we were going with this, what we were getting closer to that was good with this. Mm-hmm.
4: What do you say, Dylan? I do understand where uh, California is trying to go with, with this legislation. However— I feel like this applies a lot to affirmative action that we have in our colleges today uh with affirmative action you have uh minorities who are put into uh colleges or universities uh because uh the colleges and universities are required to fit to uh have a, meet a quota and i uh, I actually have a, a friend and she She uh, went to college and she uh, she actually went to a a very high college. I believe it was Harvard that she went to. And uh, she uh, she was a black woman and she was uh, patronized. And because she was told that she got into that college, not because of the hard work that she got that she put in, but because she was a minority who told her that. It was the other people at, at the college who believed that uh, a minor that uh, she because she was a minority she hadn't put in the work so they ridiculed her who, yes, her classmates yes whereas mm-hmm. I happen to know that she put in quite a bit of hard work to get into that college so I I believe that this uh, this new law that has been cr- uh, created uh, I believe that it doesn't help anyone. It, uh, in fact, it uh, hurts. It doesn't help anyone. It hurts everyone.
2: Thank you so much for those comments. Uh, this is Through Their Eyes on KSL. We'll take a brief break and be right back. Josh, Micaiah, and Dylan are with me this week on Through Their Eyes and such interesting comments on, on a wealth of topics. And I want to ask you about drug prices We've talked a lot about drug prices uh, this week on KSL in particular as they've done some wonderful research into what causes the price of medication to go up. And I, I learned a great deal about some things I didn't, didn't know about. Um, and, and it seems like this is a topic that comes up every year. Again and again it comes up. And they bring the CEOs of drug companies before Congress and Congress dresses them down and then nothing happens. And then we see people suffering from diabetes who make decisions between will I take the full amount of my medication or will I eat or will I try and take a little less medication? Can I get by with a little less or will I? And these decisions are just, uh, they're horrific and they're being made by our neighbors. And it's difficult to imagine we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world how is it possible that we haven't figured out, Dylan, how to fix this? So here you are coming up into uh, the system where uh, at some point you'll have to be taking care of your own health care. And we haven't fixed it yet for you. And I bet there's a part of all three of you who looks at it and think, gee, mom and dad and the rest of your generation, you have screwed this up royally. And we need to fi-. When you look at drug prices, what do you see?
4: Well, with drug prices, I know that a lot of people want to regulate drug prices. They want to make it so the uh, uh, the drug companies can only sell their drugs for a certain amount of money uh, because they feel like the drug uh, companies are taking advantage of the people's need for those specific drugs. However, I have a different perspective on this. Uh, these drug companies are uh, – they are – Uh, forced to go into millions of dollars of debt to develop their drugs. And then they put a patent on it, and then they have to – they put it out in the open for people to buy. However, once that patent expires, then the generic brand of that uh, that drug is then able to come in uh, to the stores, and that uh, generic brand – is much cheaper and therefore is uh, people buy it more often. So these drug companies are actually forced to uh, have higher prices because if they don't have higher prices, they won't be able to make up what they made, uh, what they spent on developing that drug. So I feel like we we can't enforce a certain price for a drug because that because eventually if we keep doing that, then the that government interference will make it so where people will just stop developing, developing drugs because it doesn't profit them.
2: That is their argument, Makaya. Do you agree?
1: I do agree with Dylan. I am opposed to big government stepping in and regulating an industry on drug prices. But I think the reason that Well, the beauty of the free market that way is that we have a free media, and the media has a ton of influence when it comes to things like this. A couple years ago, when Houston had all that flooding, Best Buy was selling a case of water for $100, and the media just slammed them, and they ended up lowering that price to what the water should have been. And I think we're seeing the power of what the media and patients and politicians' pressure can have on companies. So an answer could potentially be, let's put more pressure on companies from the media, from the patients, from the politicians, and get them to lower the prices where possible so that people can get the medication that they need. Um, I, I see this on a very small scale in my family. My brother needs EpiPen, and it's crazy how much that medication costs. It costs an insane amount, and and so I think that media pressure could potentially have good effects when it comes to the drug prices. And
2: didn't the pr- the cost of EpiPen like double?
1: Yeah, recently it did.
2: And, and that I don't understand.
1: Yeah.
2: Talk to me, Josh.
3: Well, so I, I, I agree that I think we need the free market to lower prices. I think short term what we need to do to get prices down immediately is to open borders so that we can get – uh, drugs coming in from Canada, other countries, because in those countries they have single payer healthcare systems, right? They're able to negotiate that price down. If they're selling it to people in those countries at you know X price, they should be able to sell it to us at X price too. Um, so I do think there is benefits in terms of government negotiation. I think you actually could get the the price down quite a bit through that, as evidenced by these other countries. However, I don't think that's the United States or I don't think that's what's going to be best. But short term, let's let's get the same price that those single payer system health healthcare systems are getting. Let's allow those drugs to come into the U.S. um, over our border. Long term, though, I think what we need is intellectual property reform big time within the pharmaceutical industry. I was getting textbooks for school just yesterday, and it's crazy how much they cost. I was getting the 22nd edition of my algebra, college algebra, right? And uh, it's just shocking because it's – you, you know it's the same thing as the twenty first, as the twentieth, as the ninth. They could. I wonder they change how many a paragraphs months.
2: are actually changed. How many problems are actually changed?
3: <laughs> probably not even probably one or two. Yeah. But yet yeah, they're able to call it a new edition and charge the same three hundred dollars for the for the textbook. It's ridiculous. Pharmaceutical companies do much the same thing. They call it evergreening, and what they do is they change a couple things with the formula of the drug and, and they, get a new patent. Yeah, they get and then they get a new patent and then they're able to get it protected. That needs. That needs to go away. That mm-hmm. is an abuse of the whole idea of intellectual property. We need to make sure that you know intellectual property is doing what 's designed to do to protect those that develop the drugs so that they can they can reap a profit on their innovation, but again at some point allowing that innovation to get out to the American people at a cheaper price, allowing the free market to negotiate that down. I think we need price transparency. This is a big critique I have of the U.S. healthcare system as a whole. If you go to the doctor, you don't know how much, right? It's going to cost for you to, to get a broken arm. We need we need these prices to be set for everyone beforehand. That way, the free market can negotiate that down. Um, and I think everyone needs to have insurance. I think that's a big thing too. A lot of times, when people go and they're they're uninsured, the hospital foots the bill. Well, we end up footing the bill those that are paying for private insurance or, or for their, their employers paying for their insurance because the premiums are higher. So, um, yeah, sorry, that was a lot. No, no,
2: <laughs> I, I appreciate all of that. And I, I do think that there is something to be said for, I mean, markets. I think that the market is an important uh, part of the United States, and yet markets are here to serve us, are they not? They are not valuable in and of themselves outside of human beings, right? Right. Um, anyway, just a thought there. Let me ask you now about this fascinating uh, article and study that I saw in the Deseret News about mental health services on college campuses. This was right about your generation, or maybe slightly older, I'm not sure uh, where all you are in schools. So a couple of you might be a little younger. But it talked about how, um, and college freshmen, let me get if I have the article here, they studied in eight countries. And they found that a third of freshmen in these eight countries that they surveyed said they needed mental health services. A third of college freshmen. And they talked about how nearly a fourth of students listed anxiety as their primary concern. And here are some of the things. And I just want you to react to this after I, after I share this with you. These students described the fear of being invisible and the fear of their flaws being noticed. That's sort of interesting, sort of the flip side of those two things. They talked about the fear of environmental degradation, made them feel helpless. They also had the fear of missing out. They had the fear of the price tag of living and whether they could afford just to live. Um, the fear of parental expectation. I, you know, I try and think back And then the need for therapy that isn't always available because colleges are just trying to keep up with having access for students because the demand is so much higher. Um, I'm not sure where I want to begin. I guess I'd like to ask you what your thoughts are about your peers and the need being greater in your generation. Can I start with you,
1: Makaya? Yeah. Well, first and foremost... I want to recognize that anxiety and depression and mental mental health concerns are very real. But also, I want to recognize that college life is hard for everybody. Everybody has those fears. Everybody has those concerns. And I think when I look at my generation, I see that my generation is a little bit soft. We've been really sheltered on on our electronics growing up until college life and then college life hits us and we have to work and we have to provide for ourselves and there are parental expectations, all all of these things. That's something that everybody experiences. And so I think we need to shift our focus and colleges need to shift their focus from from let me give you all this therapy that you need to this is what you can do for yourself to keep yourself mentally healthy in the article that we read, there was an expert that said there are steps that people can take to keep themselves mentally health, healthy. And I think those are the focuses that we need to put on our students is not that we'll provide you with all this therapy, but that, yeah, college life is hard and here are the things that you can do to keep yourself mentally healthy and to thrive in this college place.
3: That's
2: interesting. Well, Josh, what do you say?
3: Yeah, I think I think our expectations definitely need to change. I think the goal, right, of going to college is so that we, you you can leave college being independent, right? And so I think the goal is to, to be able to resolve most of the, I mean, everyone's going to have stresses. I think those day-to-day stresses, hopefully you're able to find a way to deal with those yourself. That being said, I, I think that colleges providing therapy options is very very important. I think most people don't realize that that's something you know at some point in your life you'll probably want to get there. That's a good thing, right? Everybody if you if you have a stress or something go go and figure that out, talk it out. That that's an important thing and I think we need to normalize that. Um kind of going back to what we were talking about with the Instagram earlier, I think we have an expectation that that's abnormal or that's that's bad. There's a stigma kind of surrounding that. And, no, I, I think that's a pretty good thing. Obviously, for day-to-day stresses, we want to find ways for people to become independent. You shouldn't you know, be, be dependent on the, on the therapy. But I think finding ways to resolve a lot of those issues through therapy is an important thing too. Mm. I don't want to disvalue
4: that or discount that. What do you think, Dylan? I think that uh, a big problem with uh, this, uh, this need for uh, counseling is the lack of funding for it. And uh, the problem is with this that uh, the United States citizens are already paying for their, their children to have health care up to, I believe it's age 27. 26. 26. Mm-hmm. That, I know this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So age 26, where they are paying for their children's health care and then through our taxes we are then paying for other people's uh the these college students counseling and so now you have double the amount of people that you uh were uh, you uh are paying for counseling so well i believe the answer to this funding problem is that uh the students need to pay for their the counseling themselves what needs to happen is that uh, the colleges since this problem is specifically at colleges uh, the colleges can raise their tuitions and through that uh, provide counseling and then the students are therefore paying for their counseling themselves
2: but tuition is so high already dylan you really want to raise tuition
4: well uh tuition didn't actually start getting so high until there was government interference the when gov- when the college tuitions were raised they uh at the same time that is when uh government student loans started happening and uh because of this that's why college tuitions were raised because college tuit- colleges knew that they could get more money out of the students uh through the government student loans so if we were to stop government interf- interference, and uh, then colleges would then uh, be raised, uh, be I mean, excuse me, uh, be forced to lower their tuitions once more, and then they would be, be able to uh, raise it uh, slightly more in order to pay for that counseling. Yeah,
2: interesting. Any other thoughts on this topic? Um, please, yes.
4: Well, I would just say I, I would
3: have to disagree in the sense that I feel like because. We do see so so many of those mental health issues with, the, with that specific group of people. I think it's it's very practical. It makes sense right to have counseling as part of the university. And so I don't think we would necessarily want that to be a separate thing. I think um, you know obviously that leads to increased cost in some ways. But I think the the societal cost when that isn't there is actually much greater overall. And I, I think when when our mental health is taken care of as a society, when when the water rises, all the ships in the harbor do too. And I think. We want to do everything we reasonably can to promote that healthy society um, that is independent in that way.
2: So brilliant. Uh, All three of you. I wish we had more time for my other question I was going to ask you, but I'll have to save it for next time. Thank you so much for coming. Please come back and see me again. Will you come back and see me again? Okay. This week, what a delight to have Josh and Dylan and Micaiah with me on Through Their Eyes, and we'll see
4: you next week.